0: Let's pray. Lord, that's where I ask that you would make us all go. He worshiped him. That is an awesome thing to worship a human being. It is so close to blasphemy. And yet, that's the point of the Bible. Jesus is the God-man, and he has come into the world to seek worshipers and he dies to make it happen. I feel very unworthy to speak for him, and I know that unless you come, eyes will remain closed and affections will remain dead toward Jesus. So come, I pray in his name. Amen. Last time we focused on verses 1 through 5. And we saw that Jesus sees a man blind from birth. The disciples ask what the cause of it was, the cause of being born blind, and Jesus turns it around and says, It's not a cause issue here, it's a purpose issue. Cause is never the decisive explanation of anything, purpose, divine purpose, Is always the decisive explanation of everything. Cause can take you so far, but purpose takes you all the way. Why something is. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, human causes, but that the works of God might be displayed in him, God's purpose. So, no matter what mess you have gotten yourselves into, no matter what pain you're in right now from any number of human causes, that's not the main point of it. That's huge for you to get a hold of. Right here at the beginning from last week, whatever pain you bring, whatever mess you bring, And whatever causes got you there is not the point. You can drive yourself crazy on that issue and get nowhere. It will take you nowhere to get that sorted out. Is it her fault or his fault or my fault or their fault? Fault won't get you anywhere. Only what's God going to do now? What was he doing in that? Where is he taking us, me? That's the answer you want. And it's there. Romans 8, 28 is there. God works all messes, all pain, all failure, all sorrows, all successes together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And so it was a massive thing we saw Last time. Of course, it won't make any sense unless you treasure the manifestation of the works of God over seeing or life. He said it was that the works of God might be displayed. And if you say, I'd rather have my eyes, then this won't make any sense. This will do you no good. This assumes something. It assumes Psalm 63, three: Your steadfast love is better than life. Better to be loved by God than to be alive. Or it assumes... What I read in my devotions this week from Revelation 2.10 Jesus says to the prisoners in Smyrna be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And if they say I would rather be alive here then this won't make any sense. So Verse 3 is assuming something. It's assuming that we treasure God, seeing him, knowing him, loving him, being with him forever over having eyes on the planet or being alive here. It assumes that. Then I know all of you aren't there, That's why I pray, God, desperately open your eyes. The the open eyes of the heart that we sang about is all about seeing God and Christ as more precious than life. You know that your eyes have been opened when that value change happens in you. I want him more than I want to be alive in this family, on this vacation, in this retirement, in this job, in in this mothering role, I want Christ more than you know your eyes have been opened to see what is valuable, infinitely valuable. When you have seen that God has a massively hope-filled purpose for your pain, loss, mess, brokenness. When you see that and you trust it, you're in a position now to be brokenheartedly bold, to be strong in your weakness, and you're in a position to help others make it through even when they can't see it. I am not to pause here and just say, huh, Thankful I am for how many of you already went on to the table project, the private online Bethlehem community that we announced two weeks ago. And the reason I feel so thankful about that and want to encourage the rest of you to make that move is that I've been following the prayer wall and just what's happening let me give you an illustration. Here's a woman, and you may be in this room, and probably you'll be watching the video if you're not in this room, um, who's struggled for years with infertility. She was open enough, because this, this, this is our church. This is not Facebook, okay? This is our church. And she just said that, and she said she's having a hard time feeling loved by God. 35 people, the last I saw, are all over that praying for her, and about four, when I last looked, had said to her, what looked to me like very delicate, sensitive, you can't always count on that, right? But this time it, it looked that way. These are women who had been there, and one man who had been there, and they said things hope-filled. Now, that, that's the kind of thing that happens when you come into a profound conviction and belief that God, in and through loss, has a a kind and loving and unshakable good purpose for you. And then you're able to, whether it's on the table or over coffee or in a small group, help other people make it. So, get on the table. <laughs> if you wonder, what is he talking about? Give us a ring and, and say what it will tell you. Uh, how, to, how to do it if you're part of the family here. Okay. Here we are at verse 6. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with saliva, and then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent, So he went and washed, and he came back seeing. Let me give you an observation here that sets the stage for everything else that happens in these 41 verses of this chapter. The observation is this. In verse 3, Jesus said, this man is blind so that the works of God could be manifest. And in verse 4, he says, we... Must work the works of him who sent me. And then in verse 6, he makes the mud and he puts it on his eyes and he sends him to the pool and does the works of God. That raises a question. How are we to think about this man? He said this is all about seeing God at work. The glory of God is going to shine on this man, and then he does it. What what do we make of this? That's the question this is posing. Everything flows from this. All 41 verses flow from this question. How are we to understand this man doing that, saying this is all about God shining, and then he does it? That's the question, and it's all about dividing. Some are going to blaspheme. And some are going to worship Jesus. And that's what he's doing. It's all set up to bring worship and to expose blasphemy. Look at verse 24 to see the blasphemy. So, for the second time, they, the Pharisees, called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. God. We know that this man's a sinner. God gets glory when you call Jesus a sinner. So do it. I have a name for that. Blasphemy. It's high treason and slander. It's not the main point of the text. That needed to be exposed The main point is verse 38, blasphemy is not the main response or the only response. The main response and the intended response is worship. So before this man disappears out of the story completely, the last thing he does is, Lord, you see this in verse 38, Lord, I believe and he worshiped him. If you look up all the other places where this word worship, proskuneo, occurs, they are real worship. This is not just fell down, like Jesus fell down. This is real worship. All the other uses are real worship of God, six of them in this gospel. That's the point of the story. So now we know how it starts and where it's going, and everything else is how does it get there, and why does it take 41 verses? What, what is going on here that gets us there? That's where I want you to get. I would like God to come down in this service and so work through his word that we worship, you worship Jesus. That's where we're going. It's a little foretaste of next week. We stopped at verse 38. There's one more paragraph, and it's all about real blindness you thought we saw blindness we haven't seen blindness we start to meet blindness and it isn't the beggar who has it that's what's going on the blind see and the seeing are blind that's that's the movement because John 1:14 says, "We beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth." That's what he finally saw and he worshiped. If you see the glory of the Father incarnate in a human being, you worship. Now, how does it unfold? How does he get us there? He used mud, healed him with mud. Why? Could have said, eyes open, and they would have opened. He's done that. He used mud and spit. I have a lot of ideas why. I'll just give you the one that's most obvious in the text, least controversial. I think it's manifest. Namely, he used mud because he knew it was Saturday. Sabbath, and it's against the law to knead dough or clay or mud. One of the 39 interpretations of the Pharisees as to what it means not to work on Sunday was, you can't knead dough. And the word for dough is identical, palon, to the word mud or clay brick masons, give me some more mud. And all they mean is a big clump of moldable cement. And Women working with their bread because they, they could call it mud. They usually don't. <laughs> but it's the same word. He knew exactly what he's doing. I'm going to break the law. I'm going to do it in a way that breaks the law. The law as the Pharisees understood it. Why would he want to do that because he's the Lord of the Sabbath and he wants to show that he is or to show what the point of the Sabbath is. Rest, why, 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 why do you need rest? Healing, if you don't rest, you die. Rest is weekly therapy for dying bodies. Get well, stop working. So I'm just really illustrating with this. What else would you do on the Sabbath but make eyes see? Especially if you're God and you want to show that you're the creator and sustainer and healer. But that's, I don't think any of those is the main reason why he did it. I think the main reason was to trigger the controversy. I mean, when you look at this story, the story is over virtually at verse 6. Everything else is controversy. Isn't that a little bit disproportional in the gospel? Like if you're writing this story, it's a magnificent ending he sees and is clear God has worked. His glory is manifest. That was the point. On to chapter 10 on the shepherd. No, 41 verses of controversy. That's what he was about. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was going to unleash a controversy over this man's healing by doing it on the Sabbath because, and we learn some things, little by little, through five conversations, this man's eyes get clearer and clearer and clearer. And little by little, the blindness of the Pharisees gets darker and darker and darker. Darker. And Jesus divides the house with the controversy to make the darkness of their hearts plain and to bring this man to stronger and stronger faith and more and more bold witness and greater and greater sight. It is amazing by the end of this text what a beggar is doing with these Pharisees. Stunning. This man knows nothing right? He's a beggar. He hasn't had a chance to go to school or anything. All he can do is say alms for the blind, and he's silencing the Pharisees. It's just amazing what happens to him. So we're going we're to just walk through these five, five conversations and see this happen. I, I don't think these are here by accident, and therefore as we walk through them, I expect God to do something here. It's going to do something. Something's going to happen as we just listen to what he's, or watch what he's doing in this man and those guys. You you don't want to be what the Pharisees are, so as as we walk through this, say, Pray God, please, if I'm one of those Pharisee types, please show me, cleanse me, push me over, make me like the blind beggar. Before we go to the five conversations, what about the pool? Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Why did he point out that it was called sent? This is probably John's addition. Look, little parenthesis here. John is saying, means sent. But no doubt reflecting Jesus' intention. That's the way John writes. Get Jesus right here. So there's something in Jesus' mind and John's mind as he writes this that that makes the place of cleansing and and healing and seeing more appropriate. And here's my best shot at why he pointed this out and did it this way. If a pool is called scent, what would that mean? I think it means it's the best, all the reading I've done, the best... Proposal. There was a spring probably elsewhere, and it was brought in. The water was flowing through some kind of viaduct or stream to the pool. The water was sent from a spring to the pool. This pool wasn't the originator of the water. The water was coming from a spring outside the city or over there, and it was flowing, and here's where it gathers. Here's the pool. So go to a place where water is coming from another source and is coming to you and wash there and you will see. And we know that Jesus in chapter 4 with the woman at the well called himself the living water. And we know that right here in verse 4, he says, we must work the works of him who sent me. Right after saying, him who sent me, then in verse 7 he says, and that pool is called sent. So my guess is that Jesus means for us to see that water in comparison with himself. And that water, in the context of John, is living water, life-giving water, which says, Underneath your cleansing, underneath your seeing is your new life. And what we watch unfold in this chapter is how the new life of a baby Christian who just received his sight grows into something amazing. Conversation number one, verses 8 to 12 It's between the man and his neighbors. They were arguing about whether he was the beggar. Is this the beggar who is blind? And he was insisting, I am, I am, I'm the one. And they ask in verse 10, well, how do you see? And he answers verse 11. The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. So what does he call him? The man. Right, that's where he is. That's where he is. In his seeing, he's now the man, Jesus. I know his name, that's all I know. Man, Jesus. He did it. And that's where he started. Conversation number two, verses 13 to 17, is between the man and the Pharisees. They too ask him, beginning of verse 15, how can you see if you were blind? And he tells them, end of verse 15, and then they're divided. Just like the neighbors are divided, they're divided. He can't be from God. He broke the Sabbath. Or how can he not be from God? Because he just, it looks like, gave sight to a blind man. So they say to the beggar, verse 17, what do you say about him? since he has opened your eyes. And now something more comes out of his mouth. Something's happening. He says he's a prophet. That's true. Certainly not the whole truth, but that's more than he's a man. Third conversation, verses 18 to 23, between the Pharisees and the man's parents. So they asked the parents three questions. Is he your son? Was he born blind? If he was blind, how does he see? And they answer, verses 20 and 21, well, he's our son, and he was born blind, but we don't know how he was healed. And John, the writer, says in verse 22 that the reason they said that was because they were afraid of the Jews. And I don't think the point here is mainly to be too hard on them, but mainly to throw into stark relief how amazing the fearlessness of this beggar is going to be. If the parents who had had eyes all their life and didn't have to sit on the edge of the road and just beg are afraid, you surely would expect a man who had been blind all of his life and only in the last few hours has seen a human form and has been a, an ignorant beggar would also be afraid. And if he is, it doesn't show. What he becomes here is most remarkable. So I think... The, the point of the conversation with the parents is first to confirm, yes, that's our son, and he was blind, and so this is a real miracle. But we don't know how. And to throw into relief how amazingly bold this beggar is going to prove to be in view of the parents' fear. Now, just a little nice thing to say about the parents. I, just, I was talking to John Knight about this. You know, this story is about the man, but every disabled child has parents. And and it, it's as big for them as it is for him, maybe bigger, maybe bigger. So I don't want to beat up parents. I don't want to, oh, come on, you wimps. That's not the way I'm feeling. And here's, here's one of the reasons I don't go there. They are acting here exactly like who in chapter 3? Nicodemus. He came by night. He was afraid. He was a Pharisee, and if he had been seen in the daytime coming to talk to Jesus, to ask about the new birth, or to ask about the kingdom, he would have been, uh, what happens here? But where do we find Nicodemus in chapter 19? Visibly taking the risk to buy 75 pounds of perfume to put on the dead body of Jesus. That's where we find him. Something had happened. So I want to to be very careful. I don't assume these parents aren't going there. I assume they are going there with their son, but they're not there yet. He's going way faster than they are. And doesn't that happen? Doesn't that happen? We Christians are so different in how quickly we mature, how fast we become bold. And some people take Decades to s- discover he's worth everything. And others, one week. And they are ready to lay down their lives for Jesus. Conversation number four. Verses 24 to 34. This is the longest one. And here we see the full-blown courage of a beggar. A mere Beggar standing up to the most religious, most educated people of the land. And we see here full-blown blasphemy in response to that kind of courage. So verse 24, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner, so join us in blasphemy. Or we'll excommunicate you out of the synagogue. That, that's not like being excommunicated out of Bethlehem. Because you know what happens if we do discipline on an unrepentant person? They go join another church. In spite of any letter we might send, there are churches of all kinds just move on. That can't happen here. When you get kicked out of a synagogue, you get kicked out of Judaism. This is life. It's like you, you're a Muslim, everybody's a Muslim, you can't be here as a Christian. It won't work. This is huge. Don't, don't hear, we'll kick you out. We will get rid of you from the synagogue. That means you're out of the community. This is huge, what this man was standing up against. He says, and this is his most famous sentence, people all over the world know this sentence, even if they don't know the Bible, Verse uh, 20 is still 24. Whether he's a sinner or, I don't know. One thing I know though I was blind, now I see. Now I hope you feel something here. You, you don't think of yourself as a theologian, you don't think of yourself as a scientist, and you got people coming against your faith with every manner of argument, historically scientifically, experientially is coming against you, if you try to be a bold, regular witness, and I want you to feel the power of this, a personal testimony trumps arguments when they're bad arguments. And they're all bad arguments when they're against Jesus. Don't be intimidated. This man Was way less educated than everybody in all these rooms. And he'd been blind all of his life, and he just simply said, with all boldness Look, you may know some things I don't know, but I can see. And one of the reasons I teach and preach on the doctrines of grace is because there's so many Christians who don't know how they got saved so that they don't know they have a stunning testimony that they sheer believe. Your belief is a miracle. You didn't choose it. Of course, if you have a theology that says, I did it, then you have got no testimony to the power of God in your life. But if you believe that at age 6 or 16 or 36, when you saw Jesus as needed and beautiful and sufficient and you confessed, I'm a sinner, I need you, I receive you, a miracle happened. A miracle happened. That's why these theological things matter. You can stand up in the front of the synod and say, I don't know much about what you guys deal with here. just know one thing. I was blind once, and now I see the glory of Christ as self-evidencing and compelling, and I will die for him. I'll stake my life on the truth of what I've seen in Jesus. That's what you can say. That's very powerful. It is here. It will come to a point where they can't handle him anymore. So that's what he said. I hope you're willing to say it. I hope you have enough understanding to say it. And if you don't, I hope you study about how you got saved so that you will know if you're saved, you can say it. His courage becomes scorn. Verse 27. Why do you want to hear my story again? You want to become his disciples? Whoa. What are you doing, man? Get yourself killed. They're very hostile, of course. Verse 28, they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. Now the controversy has revealed another deceit. They're not disciples of Moses. They think they are. They're not. Because Jesus said in John 5, 46, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. You don't know Moses, and you don't know God. You talk about Moses, you read Moses, you talk about God, you read God's word, and you don't know God. Because if you knew God and you knew Moses, you'd know me. So again, the controversy is revealing what's really going on in here. And now we are seeing who's really blind here take the first five books of their Bible, and they do this, and they don't see anything. They're blind. So we're watching a man whose sight is becoming clearer and clearer and clearer, and courage is becoming stronger and stronger, and we're watching these Pharisees reveal more and more blindness. You don't want to be a part of that. Conversation number five, last one, verses 35 to 38, between Jesus and the beggar after they cast him out. And what makes this conversation so amazingly significant, or one of the things it does, is that Jesus sought him out and found him. This man, verse uh, 34, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. Now that's, as I said, really serious. To whom will he turn when he's just been cast out of the community? To whom will he turn? He doesn't have to turn anywhere. Jesus turns to him. We've seen this before, haven't we? Jesus found him. Jesus seeks him. And here's what they say, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him. So I'm going to put in a little princess here. It is no accident that the next chapter is about the good shepherd who gathers his sheep. It's no accident. John knows what he's doing. He found him. That's one of mine. Nobody else wants him right now. I want him. And that's what I'm praying he'll do to you in the next five minutes of this sermon. He's after you. He's going to find you. That's why you're here. That's why you're there. Jesus heard that they cast him out, and they, he found him. After he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped. So, the last thing we see him doing, he's gone out of the story. He never says another word. We never see him again. The last thing he does is worship Jesus. I pray that's the last thing I do. Jesus does the works of God, Jesus is the glory of God, Jesus is to be worshiped. That's the point of the story. He's blind, he calls Jesus a man. Then he calls Jesus a prophet. Then he defends him at huge risk to his life. And then he worships him after he is found by Jesus. Jesus came into the world to seek worshipers. That's why he's here on the planet. Came to seek worshipers. Chapter 4, verse 23. So I'm going to close with four questions for all of you and then three statements to encourage you with the answers to the four questions. And I'll just give you the questions, won't make any comments about them. Question number one, do you worship Jesus? I'll give you just a moment. And what I want you to do with these questions is not talk out loud, but in your heart, just answer them, answer them. Say yes or no to Jesus. Jesus. Do you worship Jesus? Number two, do you find your worship of Jesus deepening or weakening in the midst of threat and danger? Like this man. What a miracle. You think seeing is a miracle. A beggar, courageous enough to get stronger and stronger as the opposition intensifies? That's strange. Number three, does your worship falter and fl- or flourish when your family is fearful or unbelieving? Kids, parents, brother and sister. Does your worship of Jesus flourish or falter when family members are unbelieving? Number four, do you confess him openly and defend him with your simple testimony? No big apologetic reasoning. Some of you are called to that, but most of you aren't. You're just called to be witnesses. You see a car, hit a person, you can be a witness. You know any any education at all. A song. Ninety five percent of Christians are saved that way. No big argument, just I saw. Finally, I saw. I was reading my Gospels, and I couldn't resist this man anymore. He was real. He's real. He's true. He's exactly what I need. He's what the world needs. He's real. This is not made up. You you saw. And so I simply ask, do you confess him openly and defend him with your simple testimony? I was blind, and now I see. And then three statements. Don't want to leave you with questions. I want to leave you with strong statements of biblical truth. Number one, God has wise, good, Christ-exalting purposes for everything that happens to you. God has wise, good, Christ-exalting purposes for everything, good or bad, that happens to you. Statement number two, Jesus is the path to the full, final, joyful experience of that purpose. Jesus is the only path to the full, final, enjoyable experience of that good purpose. You won't get it any other way. It's through Jesus. And lastly. Third, Jesus sought out this rejected blind man now seeing, this nobody, this beggar. That's the way Jesus is. He sought out this absolutely nobody. He had begged all his life. Picture somebody in our culture, right? Not us, we're all Jobs and cars, food, apartments. Jesus sought out this rejected blind man, this nobody, this beggar, and he is seeking you right now. That's why you're in this service and heard this story. He wants to make you a inexplicably courageous worshiper of Jesus. That's what he wants to do now. So let's pray that you do it. Father, as we close, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for what he did for this blind man and I'm not thinking mainly of his eyes right now. I'm thinking mainly of this man's soul. From blind to he's a man to he's a prophet to he's God and I'm on my face. And from alms for the blind to what? You want to become his disciples? Amazing. So God, that's the miracle we want. We love physical miracles. You do them. But oh, the eternal miracle of salvation, the eternal miracle of heart's eyes seeing Jesus as so real will risk our necks to defend him with a simple testimony. Do it, we pray in his name.